Before the minisode starts, I would like to apologize for my half of the audio being rather warbly, and at points, I am a little difficult to understand. I had no idea that's how my mic was recording, it had no discernible cause, and has since, randomly, fixed itself. On with the show. Welcome to the CDC Podcast, Minisode 9, New Year, New Games. Co-hosting with me this month is lecturer and critic, Professor Todd Harper. Hi. Uh, with the Minisodes, each month, both I and a co-host, hello Todd, goes back and forth, listing off a game we think hasn't gotten the critical attention it deserves until we've each done three. The hope being that some of you listening will take the initiative and fix that oversight. These games can be from anywhere, itchy art games, prestige-level indie games, or even AAA games that fell through the cracks for whatever reason. Todd, I hand it off to you. I have been playing a lot of a very troublesome game called Xenoblade Chronicles X, or Cross. I can't remember which one it is pronounced as. And I'm sure some of you may have heard of it. It was big, big AAA thing came out in December around the time that uh, GamerX happened. And I think... Nobody has talked about it because the game is sort of empty <laughs> in a weird way. Uh, like, it, it's this kind of sprawling, epic, open-world thing, right, that has a very bare-bones plot. And what I've realized is that since the game has come out, because I've had a lot of time off since then, I've put 80 hours or so into that game. And the question I keep asking myself is, why? Because I've also realized that it's not a very well-designed game. It's full of just big, glaring game design flaws. And yet, it is weirdly junk food compelling. Like, I can sit down to play that game, and four hours will just vanish. Like, I'll stop playing and go, oh, that was a good couple hours of gaming. And then I look at the clock, and I'm like, oh, it's actually 6.30 in the morning, right? Like, what happened to my life? And I'm wondering, how does that happen? How do we get this game that has such, like, big, glaring problems with it that nevertheless can just absorb a huge amount of my time? And I can't tell if it's something to do with my personality or orientation towards play like as a player or if it's something that the game does design wise but i'm sort of curious about that i'm wondering what's going on with it i was gonna ask when you said empty did you mean like the world is empty is it thematically empty is it or some other it's meaning of empty? Uh, now to get myself in trouble it's like mmo empty right like the deal with xenoblade is that you're on this planet called mira and it's a huge completely contiguous open world, which is really kind of cool, right? Like, you walk out of New L.A., which is the city that is kind of like your home base, and into this continent called Primordia, and, like, that's it. You can just, as long as you can walk there or eventually drive or eventually fly your robot that you get there, right, you can just go. It's not an MMO. It just has a lot of MMO qualities, which the original Xenoblade game did also, but the story is really weak. The narrative that leads you through everything is not particularly strong or well-crafted. 
And I just feel like the most of what you end up doing is kind of MMO style, go to this place and kill this thing, or go to this place and pick up this object, or pick up this many of this object and bring them back to me for a reward, right? And the weird thing to me is that MMOs have a lot of that, I guess what I'm calling empty gameplay, because they, to me anyway, they are frameworks for experiencing that gameplay with other people as a social experience, right? So kind of the emptiness of it doesn't distract you from being able to do it with other people. And I'm being very, very broad sweeping and reductive right now. So please, please put away your pitchforks and torches. But I guess that's what I like. It's a lot of just doing the same repetitive stuff in this admittedly like gigantic and vibrant world and ecosystem. Like the game is beautiful and the scope is epic. And, but I just, the stuff you do in it is very just, nah. You know, and yet it is weirdly compelling. And I wonder if it's just like a junk food sort of scenario or what? Well, now shifting over to my first game, and it's a game that I just started recently, but I keep dipping back into even after my first captain died and it's Sunless Sea. Mm. I was actually rather annoyed when my first captain died because I like had half the map unlocked at that point. I'd like discovered half, like half the map, the islands, and then just one minor accident, and I got attacked by a criminal organization and a band of thugs, and that was it for me. New captain, I had to start over with this randomized underworld map. And for those who don't know, Sunless Sea is a procedural death labyrinth, except instead of a dungeon, you're on an underground ocean. It's part of the Fallen London universe, where it's same as the uh, browser game Echo Bazaar, where London has fallen into this underground plane and it's mixed with Lovecraftian-style mythology. And there are, as terror is, is a game mechanic that manage your crew's terror. And there's all these just weird stories that come about. You find a new island, you go to a dock, you get to look around the place, and you get to, and you get to make choices. And it's mostly text-based when you're not, when you're actually on the islands. It's mostly text-based and you get these weird adventures, like at one point you have to choose between two warring factions of rats and armored guinea pigs to who will control the island and the special glowing jewel that gives warmth and healing. And that's just one example of some of the weird mythology that has cropped up within this space. And you have to manage your resources, and along the way you have to manage your resources. You can't run out of food, you can't run out of fuel, otherwise you end up stranded and you end up having to like you could end up cannibalizing your crew. You could end up like just destroying the ship to try and push to the nearest dock. So it's easy to see how it dies. And you, and of course the map is randomized. All the islands, all the places, all the stories are completely shuffled around. If your captain dies and the fog of war is put back on, hmm. and there's just this sense of compelling dread because this little t- whenever you're just going along, because using the lamp uses fuel. You turn the lamp off, and your terror starts to go up, because you're on this empty, black ocean with nothing around you. And sometimes random events will come up, like they see twinkling lights into the distance, and they think, oh god, it's spirits coming to get us. And yes, there are gods of the sea, and it's, I don't want to say unique mythology, because it could be based off something I just don't know about, but I just love the compelling nature of the narrative, because it's just exploration. You find exploration, you get, to, you can do some stuff, and then you try and go somewhere else. 
and the only drive is unlock the map, like open the rest of the map. I don't know if there's an end game. I haven't gotten that good at it. But I've dumped about eight hours into this so far, possibly more, through three captains, and one of which died to a very large crab who I couldn't hit the glowing weak spot of. <laughs> no massive damage for you, huh? No, no. I'm glad you remembered that. I am old. And I remember many things. So I, I've heard this talked about like on, on podcasts, but like no one's ever, no one seemed to ever sit down with the Fallen London universe and like tease what it's what like what the universe is actually saying because this is something very different where death doesn't well for your captain it does but death doesn't seem to have as much hold like you have tomb colonists who will event who die when they ground away to dust but they just keep going and going you have like these other creatures that just sort of never seem to age then there's in a way it's kind of taking apart the Victorian mythos of, of like, that era of Britain mythology, because you're in a rather gross world that's crumbled and decayed, and I guess you could say, if you wanted to get poetic about it, the inner rot has come out, and it's literally sunk into the earth. And there are mentions of, like, the other, because it's, like, a Canaanite that's, like, Genghis Khan, if they, if they made it to the modern age and we're now part of this Lovecraftian universe in an island on an empty underground sea. There is so many just little details that I feel are saying something that I've never, and there's so much fruit to like pick apart and figure that out, but I don't see anyone doing that. I'm looking at kind of, I've never played Sunless Sea. I've heard lots of good things about both Fallen London and Sunless Sea. And I feel like you could do particularly a, a really nice examination, especially since Darkest Dungeons just came out. Mm -hmm. Or officially, came, yeah, officially out. came out, right. Like it's been playable for a while. But I feel like there's, you could do a very interesting examination of kind of the mechanical deployment of, I don't want to use the word, Sanity, because I don't want to get into like too many ableist discussions of of their crazy, right? Um, they they use the word terror, yeah, rather than sanity. Like if you get too scared, you can just you just run away. You just basically you, you ditch your job, you jump off the ship, and you just leave. Yeah, I, it would be interesting yeah. to see someone talk about like the costs required of maintaining emotional equilibrium, right? Like the emotional costs of things are so infrequently discussed or even like operationalized in games. And it seems like both Sunless Sea and Darkest Dungeons both do that in their own, you know, unique or idiosyncratic way. The interesting thing that the Fallen London, which used to be called Echo Bazaar, which is a part of Fallen London in the lore, was that it took out all combat, and it, but it kept the same type of like uh, leveling up systems of RPGs, except they were for skills like how cunning you are, how well spoken you are, and it and it kept like instead of like how well you swing your sword, it's how well can you talk your way out of this situation. And the penalty isn't always death; it's sometimes it's you lose you lose a renewable resource, you lose you become a little more terrified or. In the original Fallen London, there was a sanity meter, but it seemed more like 
an interdimensional thing where if you lose too much sanity, you're actually pushed off into another plane of existence until you can find your way back, which I'm not sure how I feel about that, if only because of its labeling. Yeah. But it, it keeps the skill check thing, but it gets it gets rid of the sanity requirement and sticks with terror, but it keeps the... Uh, there There is minor combat when you're in the ship phase, but during the story phase, it's all these other skill checks, and only one of them is regarding to combat. And the uh, but the others present present options. They present ways through, but you can still level them up, which is an interesting workaround to the RPG conundrum. Yeah, that would be would be a cool thing to look at. Um, what else? Is there? Your second game. My second game. So I have actually been playing a lot of Vanillaware stuff lately. Possibly because I'm kind of anticipating that PS3 re-release of Odin's Fear. Or not PS3. PS3 is not a current-gen system. PS4. PS4 release of Odin's Fear. And I think the the two I've been playing the most, because I traveled for the holidays and all I had on me was my Vita, so I have both Dragon's Crown and Muramasa, which are both Vanillaware games, and I was playing them on the Vita. And... I feel like a lot of critique of Vanillaware games that I've seen has mostly kind of focused around George Kamatani's art style, especially when it comes to Dragon's Crown, right? Which I'm not even, I'm not even going to say that it's beyond critique or shouldn't be talked about. It absolutely should because George Kamatani's art style is bananas. But the thing that actually strikes me about the, all of the Vanillaware stuff as I've played them is their food. And so I kind of like dug into all of the Vanillaware stuff I own, which is actually all of it, except for Grim Grimoire, I think, because I don't have a copy of that. But looking at like the importance of food in those games that is like that doesn't happen in other titles, and it's sort of great. And it made me think about how like and mostly in video games, like rhetorically and semiotically, we associate food with life, with health, right? Like, going all the way back to meat hidden in the wall in Castlevania. You know, like, you pick, up a, you pick up a piece of food and you eat it and you feel better. Like, it restores your literal health, right? But I feel like that's often very functional. And the Vanillaware games in particular pay, like, almost lascivious, lascivious intention to food. Dragon's Crown does this really great thing where between, if you go out to dungeons, between dungeons, you have a moment where there's a mini game and everyone in your party can cook food and the meat is all based on stuff that you killed in the last dungeon. And you literally like put it in frying pans and have to flip it over and turn it and add ingredients. And the art is just really like, lush and full and amazing and they actually like paid what feels like good attention to the aesthetic experience of cooking and eating food which for non-cooking games right like you know something like cooking mama where you're working with the ingredients right that doesn't happen very often and i'm very confused by that and i i wonder if there's something to be looked at with kind of the ideogram of food and what it stands for and how it's used 
in games. Like the only other games that I can think of that approach food that way, like Earthbound, for example. Remember everyone in Earthbound has their has a favorite food, like a food that they enjoy more than other foods, and that you could buy condiments and some condiments went with foods and some condiments didn't go with foods. And then you had, you know, Pooh who was like raised in this kind of Buddhist retreat scenario, so he only drank pure water, right? And ate noodles. And that was it. Like, none of the other food that you could get would heal him at all. I, that's not quite the same as what the Vanillaware games do. But it's, it, I would be interested to see, you know, what games actually take a more complicated approach to food beyond there's this leg of roast that we hit inside a block or, like, the old school Oregon Trail scenario where you shoot a bear and the bear becomes a bajillion pounds of meat and then off you go towards Oregon, right? I know Zach Alexander would be very interested to hear thoughts about food in those games. The weird thing is we don't talk about food a lot, right? It's a given a lot of the time. It's kind of, we just assume it's there for this or this or this. And, yeah. Yeah, in RPGs, it's like you never see them eat, you never actually have to hunt. It's, it's assumed it's done off screen. Although, okay, I remember the Breath of Fire games used to make you hunt. One of them did, right? And the best part was that there was actually a way to hunt that involved, like, high explosives, but it ruined the food if you used it. I want to say this is Breath of Fire 2. Like, there was a... You could use some sort of weapon that would just, like, you could kill a deer with it, but it incinerated the deer. So the meat that you would get from the deer is completely worthless. So it was, like, the easiest, most efficient way to hunt, but it was also pointless. Because it didn't get you anything. <laughs> How about your second game, sir? My second game isn't completely out yet. It's it's an episodic adventure game that's two-thirds out. It's called Knee Deep, and it describes itself as a swamp noir. Hmm. Now, I'm not going to say it's of the highest quality, but it's doing a lot of interesting things things that in other hands could be done better, but it's still they're still interesting in what they're doing. In it, you play three different characters who all eventually cross paths within this one roadside rundown pseudo attraction that a film crew just happened to stop at because the actor who was supposed to be the star of the film is found to have to be hanged from the nearest water tower. Huh. So you play as a blogger like a real news reporter and then a private investigator who's hired to figure, and each of you are trying to figure out what's going on for obviously different reasons. And it, what's the interesting part is that you go around, you talk to you talk to people, you gather information, but eventually after each like scene, or at least how it's blocked off a scene, you eventually have to write a report, either a blog post for a clickbaiting news site in the vein of Gawker as the blogger or as like the online version of a legitimate local newspaper, or it had a print version, but now it's moving online, and then a, or a report back to the person who hired you to figure out, okay, do are we actually like liable for this? What's going on around this movie set? Because they're shooting on location, and they're in the middle of the... In Cypress Knee, apparently. So, yes, which is a terrible, racist roadside dive that's, you know, where all the 
world where like motel rooms are in the shape of teepees and I just they sell I'm on their website and I just got to a screenshot of the Mohawk Inn. Um Although, although the narrator in the screenshot uh, says the Silloy family built this place in the 60s, back then white folks really didn't think twice about whether they offended other cultures. So I'm like, okay, well, at least... It is being protested by what I assume is a Native American and not a character who thinks he's a Native American so far, but it, it, has, it, has, it understands the context of where it's in. But what's, what's interesting is about the news reports, first you get to pick your one fact that your blog post or your news, short news blurb or your report to the boss is about, and then you get to decide how extreme is it. In the blogger's cases, am I going to go straight for like the yellow journalism clickbait? Am I going to sensationalize it? Am I going to go for the middle ground? Or am I just going to be just the facts? And, and of course, then it had, then it's a, then you get, feedback is like, well, obviously the more sensationalist is going to get more clicks, it's going to get more views, your boss is going to be on your back. But the thing is, you're still investigating. So various, I guess you could call them factions or rather groups, they're going to notice how you report certain things. And they're going to either shun you out or it's going to close off avenues for information because of how you report, whether you're respectful, whether you're completely disrespectful, whether you accuse someone of murder. And eventually you figure, and then, and then this, it turns into the soap opera right thing where you come, oh, the three characters actually have like this past together and they're just meeting and, and it kind of, it kind of devolves into like that USA cable drama soapy <laughs> thing. I know, <laughs> which, I know exactly fun. what you mean. <laughs> which, which is fine. You know, you know what, it, it is what it is, but what the real big draw when I first saw this at Indicate East was the direction it took in because it's it's like this massive stage play with moving set with like the sets like actually rotating the stage out stage out or when one character leaves a scene they will literally stand up from the chair walk out the front of like what looks like an office to another part the lights go down on one section of the stage they come up and now it's a flashback and it's this and the whole with the whole presentation is as if it's like this mega stage play of this trashy cable primetime soap drama thing. Hmm. Yeah, their their website has a blurb. Gaming goes to the theater. Vivid voice acting, imaginative set transitions, and melodrama specifically designed for the digital stage. I That sounds really cool, if only because I feel like the theatricalness of stuff, especially kind of like mostly text-oriented puzzle adventure or exploration games, right? I feel like they go to great lengths to hide the theatrical elements that they use. Like, they, they actually try to, to make them very sub-rosa, and it feels like making them more overt, like actually making them part of the core aesthetic, is a very interesting decision. And to me, it sounds way more interesting, right? Like, kind of... The way you're describing it very much makes me, makes me feel like this is dinner theater that is actually going down at a tourist trappy restaurant in Cyprus, me. If it wasn't for the fact that the stage makes Broadway stages look minuscule. Right. Like <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you're doing all the dialogue. Op- and if they don't spell out the entire option. It's like the, the modern way of doing the Mass Effect wheel. of It'll tell you the subject of what it's talking about, and then the text will actually fill it in. 
But what I love always is that there's always this one option. In the case of Ramona Teagues, which I believe is how you pronounce her name, which is the blogger, is that one of them is just, the I think it's called the quirky response. And I have chosen that option more times than I care to admit, simply because I'm curious as what counts as the quirky, quirky response. response. In some cases, it's annoying. In other cases, it actually makes me laugh when, when she's accused by this thing. like, you know what, we don't want your kind around here, muckraking, all that. And then she just turns to him and says, pineapples, and then walks off. What? <laughs> I don't understand. Okay. That's, that's a very yes-no, maybe chair scenario, right? <laughs> yeah. Chair? <It's>, <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, and of course, there there is there is a gator which I'm sure is going to come into that that's escaped from its pen that I'm sure it's going to come out into the story later. So there's that little uh, Chekhov's gun going on in the background. But it is a story of investigating this apparent suicide of a famous yet now fallen actor who's trying to make a comeback. There's this Scientology analog that's in a trailer that apparently he was donating money to because he's one of those Hollywood types (laughs) (laughs) and so on and so forth. It's just, it's just a lot of stuff being smashed together and I'm not going to say it's good, but it's interesting enough to talk about in a lot of respects. In many ways, I think interesting can be better than good. Yeah. Your second game or no, we're up to three. Yeah, my final one. We we moved through this with swiftness. I have been playing somehow a Super Robot Wars game, which if you don't know anything about that series, and why would you? Because most of them didn't make it to the U.S., including the one that I've been playing, by the way. They are a... They're by Banpresto, although I think now they're Banpresto and Bando... Uh, Bando Namkai. Namco Bandai. And they basically took a whole bunch of Super Robot shows that were owned or produced by Bandai or Sunrise. So if you don't know anything about Super Robot stuff from Japan, it's shows like Mazinger Z and Getter Robo and a whole bunch of other stuff. And, you know, and they basically threw them together into a crossover that is a strategic, it's a map, strategic map game. And it's gotten more complicated over time. And as the studios that are part of the crossover have produced more and more shows, more and more, every new Super Robot Wars game includes more and more different shows. Like most of them, some Gundam show is usually in every Super Robot Wars game, Mazinger Z and all that other good stuff. But also like one of the recent ones in the past 10 years involved Evangelion, right? Because they were made by a studio that falls under the the banner or um, the one that I'm playing super robot wars Z has the big O in it, which if you remember that show from the Toonami days back in the day where it was basically a giant robot anime that was drawn in the style of Batman, the animated series. The problem of course, is that these are licensing nightmares, which is why they don't make it to the U S like the, the required licenses and rights to distribute all of this stuff in the U.S., even in game form, would be so intense that almost all the Super Robot Wars games don't make it here. The ones that did were from the series called Original Generation, which is all Ben Presto's original characters. There are no licensed characters, so those can make it over. I've been playing one called SRWZ, which is from, I want to say, it's a PS2 game, so we're talking like, I think somewhere in 2007, 8, or 9. And it's interesting, it's fun, it's in Japanese, which... I speak what I would call fanboy Japanese, which is to say there's like a handful of kanji that I can recognize and all of them appear in Street Fighter, and that's why I know them. Uh, 
So I don't, I kind of don't really know what's going on with the plot, but I know enough of the interface that I can actually play the game in an interface. But between that and waiting for Project Cross Zone 2 to come out in a few weeks, I've been thinking about crossover games, which I really like. But they're, I feel like they're pretty rare outside of Japan. Like, I can't think of many crossover titles in the U.S. that were mostly U.S. made, except for, like, PlayStation All-Stars Battle Royale, right? Which mm-hmm. was all Sony characters and was made by Sony Santa Monica. Which is only technically American. Yeah, which is like... <laughs> well, I do think all of the development and stuff was done in the U.S. Yeah. Um, and there actually aren't that many... Japanese created characters in All Stars Battle Royale. Uh, I think like just Raiden and it might just be Raiden, like just Raiden. You're right. I, I, everything I'm thinking of is North, maybe not American, but North American. Yeah, definitely, definitely so not made in Japan. Made. Like the crossover game is really common in Japan, but it's not common in the U.S. And I'm wondering why that is, because to me, I love them. Like a Look, Project Cross Zone as a game, like the first one, had some real problems. But, And the hilarious thing is that that game exists in the Super Robot Wars lineage, believe it or not. It was made by Monolith Soft, who also made Super Robot Wars Original Generation Saga Endless Frontier. That's a mouthful. Which is a really, it was a DS game. I thought it was a really good DS game. It was really funny. The script was kind of like really witty and Sometimes there were some jokes, some gender jokes in it that I was not a fan of, but but it was a crossover game, right? Like, it had two characters from Namco Cross Capcom in it. It had Cosmos from Xenosaga in it, right? And there's a direct lineage of that game to Project Cross Zone. Like, they're all monolith-made and kind of demi-sequels of each other. And I'm wondering why... I, I wonder why U.S. audiences and U.S. creators, or just non-Japanese, I should say, not U.S., like... Why are we not creating that sort of stuff? I wonder, what is the primary joy of the crossover game, right? Like, is it seeing characters from multiple properties together interacting in a way that they would never really do in their home series? Or is it like... I always thought it was like the action figure thing. You have a toy box full of action figures from different worlds and sets, and that's what the kid has. So, of course, they're now going to interact, and you create something new out of it. Yeah. It's almost a form of play remixing. Yeah, although then I think that question is even more like, why don't we see that <laughs> in the U.S.? Because, right? well, the, I, I have a theory, and I think it has to do with the idea that most U.S. creative properties aren't built for iconography. They're built for to be inserted within their, within their own single narrative. And those that we do have for that are iconic and fit that mold are built into such huge media franchises you'd never, like your Star Wars, your Harry Potters, you're never getting the media rights to do that unless you're Traveler's Tales. Yeah. Although I guess you could call like the Disney Infinity or the, and the, those, those type of games a sort of crossover. Yeah. I mean, those are, and I suppose the in front, the, like the in studio crossover, can you imagine like a Project Cross Zone made entirely of Bioware characters? I feel like I've actually heard this before. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure this is not I don't know if it was theoretical or if it was a rumor, but I remember like, okay, what if you took like your favorite characters from each Bioware games and put them put a, This sounds you. like a conversation I've heard before. And I mean this is actually the whole premise of Heroes of the Storm, Blizzard's MOBA. 
right? Yeah. And despite that game having some, I enjoy Heroes of the Storm before I finish this thought. I enjoy Heroes of the Storm, but there's also, it's got some problems. But like, I think one of its enduring charms is that I can be on a team of like Jaina Proudmore and Jim Rayner and Diablo, right? Like together, just, I, I, I don't know. I, they're very rare, and I, it could be you're right that the a lot of like the most iconic characters that happen in in U.S. or non-Japanese created games um, tend to exist in already uh, they're in already existing franchises, right? Where licensing them for crossover stuff would be as just as much of a nightmare as getting like a whole bunch of Japanese robot shows, which is why we don't get SRW games, right? Yeah. Hmm. Because and and I guess the weird thing about it is that like one of the most popular games in Gamedom is a crossover game, right? Smash Brothers. Yeah. You know. But that's that's an inter studio title, yeah. Within reason, right? Like ever since Brawl So it, it has it, been expanding out, yeah. Yeah, like Pac Man's in Smash Four, right? Like <laughs> where did that even come from? Sonic, Snake, Cloud now. So somebody writes something about crossover games. Fulfill my wishes. And then whatever Eric's wishes are for his third game. Third game, and I'm choosing this one mainly because I get to say its title out loud. Dr. Langeskopf, the Tiger, and the Terribly Cursed Emerald Whirlwind Heist. This game will take you about 15 minutes to play. It's made by a former developer of the Stanley Parable, the, the official release, not the Half-Life 2 mod that it's based on. And it's in that same style. You're walking around, you're clicking on things, you have a British-sounding man giving you narration over the voice. And yes, it's the same postmodern sort of telling of focused on games themselves through the, through the eyes of this very strange world. In this case, you're about to enter into the demo beta of the game known as Dr. Langeskopf, the Tiger and the Terribly Cursed Emerald, except... In this, in this world, every game is functioned by a lot of little people who were just called the gnomes behind the scenes, pulling all the levers to make sure all the triggers go off, letting the tiger into the thing and then calling it back so it doesn't hurt the player. And unfortunately, because it's such a big production, only one person at a time can access the game in the fiction. And you happen to be the second person, so you're stuck in the waiting room, except all the people behind the scenes have gone on strike, so you're asked a favor. Can, can you just push a few buttons so the player ahead of you can go, and then you can come <laughs> in your turn. <laughs> and, of course, it, and of course, it's this little comedy short about all the things that can possibly go wrong, and, of course, they do. And I have heard people chat about it, they've enjoyed it, they've talked about it. Now I'd like to see some actual writing about it. I think it doesn't go quite as far as it could in its premise, but that's just my little opinion about this little short game. So the Justice Points podcast um, sadly ended its run recently, and in their very final episode, they do their end of the end of the year like what is our game of the year sort of you know what did we enjoy what did we not enjoy and Apple Cider Mage who was one of the hosts was very into this game like uh, she played it in the last just in December of twenty of twenty fifteen and it like snapped up her I've loved this game more than anything uh, for twenty fifteen so I've heard a lot of praise. For this game. What's interesting to me is that it seems like this designer has an obsession with like engagement through non-engagement. 
Stanley Parable. To be clear, this isn't this isn't Davy Rendon. This is the other person who helped Davy Rendon make the Stanley Parable. Oh. Well, who knows? Maybe this is maybe this is the guy. Maybe this is why the Stanley Parable did this, right? Like the Stanley Parable has a lot of moments where the game's just like, okay, don't play me, and that's how you play. And, I like the Stanley Parable. Oh, I think the yeah. Stanley Parable is a lot of really cool ideas, but sometimes that game was just like, hey, so now it's time to play me by not doing a thing. And that always felt weirdly counterintuitive to me, but like it seems like there's a that's a similar twist. I mean, just going. I haven't played this, so just kind of going by how you've described it, there's just kind of. I, the, I should I should explain that this is uh, it's the indie studio created by William Pugh, P U G H. How how do you pronounce that? Probably Pugh. Pugh, and he he also and then he got a bunch of people to create this new studio. And as far as I can tell, this is like their proof of concept of their studio before they go and make their big game that's for money, because this one's free. Hmm. So you can enjoy this on Steam right now. Perhaps I will do that. For what it is, I really enjoy it, and I feel like there is something in there. It doesn't overstay its welcome, which is something that is becoming greater and greater praise, is like if it doesn't overstay its welcome, that means it knows what it wants to do, it does it, and then it stops, even though it could go further just to fill whatever you think it should fill. The game that doesn't last too long is also, like, that's a delicate art, right? The game that is just long enough to be a complete thing, but is not so long that it wears out its welcome. Like, just to head back to the start of the show, part of me is like, would I rather have had this tight 15-minute experience of... I'm not going to try and say the title of this game again. <laughs> I, like, would I would I rather have had this this nice, tightly constructed 15-minute experience or the 80 sprawling hours of running over little treasure beads in my robot in Xenoblade? And I'm like, probably I would have preferred just the nice, tight 15-minute experience, right? That's a delicate art, too, right? Like, realizing yeah, that your game doesn't have to be Titanic. Or it ends up like the Titanic. <laughs> well, thank you, Todd, for coming on, and thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this mini-sode and all our other podcast endeavors, please rate us on iTunes. We would really appreciate some recognition there of any sort. And if you like all the work we do on Critical Distance at all, please Take a look at our Patreon, patreon.com slash critdistance or criticaldistance Patreon into Google and you'll find it. And if you can and really do enjoy the work, please consider supporting us there. And all the games that we talked about will be down in the show notes. So please consider looking at them, playing them, and writing them. Thank you, Todd, for coming on. Thanks for having me.